Please leave me a rating and a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever. Thank you. Here's a Unitarian. Here's a Unitarian that I interviewed. Not gonna rhyme the next line. Not gonna rhyme the next line. I don't, I don't owe, owe that, that to you, but what I do owe you is an interview. interview. A, a mildly, mildly interesting, interesting one. So and here is a good, good one. one. I, I hope, hope you like it. Today I interviewed Jan Eller Isaacs, a senior co-minister at Unity Church Unitarian, which is a Unitarian church. Uh, Unitarian Universalist is a very interesting religion. If you don't know much about it, you should listen to this episode. Very cool. Very interesting. Uh, she says a lot of great things about grief. Uh, she has helped a lot of people through the grief process because the church helps with memorial services and funerals. Um, that's all I'm going to say about this episode. It's great. Thank you, Jan, very much for uh, letting me interview you. And here is the theme song. Welcome to Your Eulogy, the podcast where I interview someone about their life so that we can talk about their death. Today is a special episode. Um, we aren't going to be doing the deep personal dive that we normally do, but instead I have someone who represents the Unity Church Unitarian, a Unitarian church in St. Paul. Would you like to introduce yourself and your, your title and yes. or however you'd like to do that? My name is Jan Eller Isaacs and I am senior co-minister here at Unity. My husband and I have been serving as senior co-ministers here at Unity since 2000 when we arrived. And prior to that, we served an urban congregation in Oakland, California for 18 years. Oh, wow. That's nice. Um, yeah, Oakland and uh, San Francisco are really starting to become little... Um, little pieces of representation for all of America with like the housing stuff and right. everything. Um, right. Right. What was it like when you lived there? Uh, well, um, Oakland had gone through some pretty uh, rough and hard times, um, really impacted by the crack cocaine um, epidemic and AIDS. And um, there was a great deal of poverty and homelessness uh, something that we were engaged with and worked hard in. Um, and um, we had a very public ministry there and a very young, dynamic, con we served a very young and dynamic congregation. So it's interesting because we didn't, we had a lot more weddings than we had memorial services. Huh. And when we got here, all the generations are well represented here. Um, but, but, we uh, uh, an important dimension of our ministry here has been um, serving families who've gone through a major loss and and conducting memorial services. 
Okay. And I'm sorry, I, I kind of forgot bits mm -hmm. of your bio. Um, mm -hmm. Are you from California? I moved there when I was 11. Okay. I moved around a lot as a kid. but Okay. Uh, so in Oakland, um, those three topics, homelessness, the AIDS mm -hmm. crisis, um, the crack epidemic, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> do you feel that proximity to such clear um, uh, crises and injustices made you become helped support your uh, Unitarian belief structure because social justice is such a big part of it? Yes. Like, do you, I guess Certainly. the question is, if you were born in Pleasantville, Idaho, mm -hmm. <laughs> do you think um, your uh, religious foundations would have been different? No, I'm a born and bred Unitarian Universalist, and it's been a faith that um, has always had enough room for me and um, always encouraged me to keep to take seriously my spiritual and religious life and to keep uh, ever curious and keep learning and growing and uh, deepening. Yeah. Um, perhaps we should do a little bit of education uh -huh. for people that uh -huh. aren't familiar with Unitarianism, mm -hmm. Unitarian Universalists. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. um, yeah, so it's it's comes from a Christian tradition. Yes, uh, we um, come, we really come from uh, the Puritan Church, and uh, we are an offshoot, really, of the United Church of Christ, or the Congregational Church, which were the pilgrims. Um, and uh, we had disagreements about the Trinity, and and really the nature of, of belief and religious life. And back in the Council of Nicaea, when the Trinity we can trace our, our religious roots back to the Council of Nicaea, wow. um, where our side lost, and there were two, m the most significant points where our side lost, the Arians, they were called, the followers of Ar uh, Father Arius. Short interruption, the word Arian, when we hear it, most people think of the Third Reich's use of the word Arian, which is spelled differently. The, there's a funny little word history where the Aryans of yore were actually northern Indians, um, I th or at least I think there were people that invaded northern India. They were considered a higher class. They had military accomplishments, and the Hitler and people like him uh, seemed to like them a lot and considered them purer than other races over there, and so that's why... They embraced the term Aryan and linked it with European civilization and greatness and whatnot. Um, was the Trinity. We believed in the unity of God, and therefore uh, Jesus is a part of God but subservient. Mm. And the other, but I think much more significant, is that we believed instead of a profession of faith being at the heart of of how you of, of a faithful life, it was the, how the person lived their life was much more important. And both of those points lost at Nicaea. Mm. And I think the church has suffered because of the, that, lo that loss in particular, that it had more to do with what you said you believed rather than how you lived your life. So we then, therefore, you know, we have corrupt priests because they can say they're aligned with Jesus and God, but if they're, you know, being abusive, that's not being a true Christian, in my opinion. Yeah, 
And in um, modern um, 2018 uh-huh. Unitarians, uh-huh. how how much what does it rep- what does it resemble to an outsider? Would they just sure. say, "Oh, this looks like it's a spiritual club, non-denominational"? I, well, we are not. The entire theological spectrum is present in our congregations. Um, we have atheists, agnostics, secular humanists, religious humanists. We have pagans. We have Buddhists, Jews, Hindus, uh, and Muslims. Um, so we are a non-creedal faith and that values an, an ever-inclusive, um, expanding circle. Uh, we believe that um, at the heart of the religious life is complexity, ambiguity, and curiosity. Yeah. I, I feel that so many of us have a hard time um, categorizing you because I think there was even a lawsuit in Texas where they were saying, like, if you don't have doctrine, you can't be a religion. Right. And for a short period, <laughs> the right. Texas status was taken sure. away. Yeah. Um, and I have a hard time categorizing because we have the model of um, doctrinal or creedal right. faith being right. how it has to be. Right. Um, do you feel that it is an offshoot, like different or from other more specific religions with more specific teachings? Well, you know, a lot of the Protestant religions membership are really in, in some in steep decline and others in, in, in decline. Unitarian Universalism has always been a small sector of mm-hmm. of the religious landscape, but we are holding our own. And, you know, if you look at people who take the test belief.net, a lot of people come up as spiritual but not religious. And often they're told the, the, the religious group that most resembles what you profess to believe is Unitarian Universalism. Mm-hmm. And I another thing I want to lift up is you know, Unitarianism is about the Trinity and non-doctrinal, and the Universalist strand is really the belief that everyone is saved and that there is no such thing as hell. Yeah. And um, and so that, in terms of our memorial services, um, our memorial services are distinctly different than memorial services in more traditional Christian congregations because those services tend to be about the liturgy and about the gospel and particular readings and beliefs that are spoken. And sometimes the person is hardly even mentioned, Mm -hmm. though that has changed over time. Um, And our services really focus on a celebration of one unique and precious life. That's beautiful. I... When my um, when my grandfather was dying, um, I was present for the, I think the commandments called anointing of the sick, uh-huh. um, and it, it was a little bit weird because it was slight talk about um, if you would go to heaven mm-hmm. <laughs> or not. Mm-hmm. Um, Specifically, what happened was my grandfather said, his friend said that he had, there was a place waiting for him in heaven. And the priest said, I can't, it's not for me to say if you do, which is the priest's job. The priest doesn't get to say who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. But, I mean, come on, a nice old man dying 
you know, he shouldn't have to consider if he's going to burn eternally in flames. But, you know, that's just what happens when you have a punishment-oriented religion, which is the Catholic Church, which it kind of is, but it kind of isn't. I don't know. There's a great diversity in the Church. I was raised Catholic. I don't like it, so I have opinions about it. You can have your own opinion about the Catholic Church, if you like. But one thing that I did hear, um, one piece of, um, one thing I like about Unitarians is the idea that you just simply, nobody gets to define what's correct, right. even yourself, right. you know, so right. there's, there's, right. um, and I just think that's, a, that's just a universal law that's really right. quite wonderful. All truth is partial. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so we were starting to talk a little mm -hmm. bit about um, how you do funerals mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. memorial services. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, how do, do people differ a lot? Is it always um, a, a new form of celebration or? Well, a, we certainly take a family's needs into account, um, though the form of our memorial services looks pretty similar service to service. Mm -hmm. And let me say that the difference between a funeral and a memorial service is a funeral means the body is there, mm. and a memorial service means the body is not there. That doesn't mean cremains can't be there, uh, but that's the difference. Oh, okay. Just so you so you know. And most Unitarian Universalists opt not to have bodies in the service and either do green burial or cremation. Not all of them, but the great majority of them are either doing green burial or, um, or cremation. Okay. How do, this may seem like a, mm -hmm. a weird question, but how do Unitarians rebel? I grew up Catholic. There was a lot of ways for me to just like grow up under this institution and like rebel and kind of sure. like, sure. and in a weird where you kind of discover yourself through rebellion. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Sure. Um, what What do you, yeah. Well, they leave the church or they, um, or they think it's ridiculous. And, um, and so, you know, but a lot of young people are not finding, um, are not finding the church relevant anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, your generation is the lowest um, attending religious service generation that we've ever seen, you know, since, you know, modern times. Yeah. What What do you think people get out of religion? Because it, it seems that uh, Unitarianism does the best job I can think of, of being tolerant and um, doing things correctly. Mm -hmm. And when people do take a step away from organized religion, some people say, we step towards science. Mm -hmm. um, some, you know, it may be uh, political affiliation, mm -hmm. um, other forms of vocation. What do you think people are trying to get at? Because when I asked my my mother about her spirituality, it was mostly community for her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I uh, think for a lot of people, I think it's um, how to nurture the spirit within. So I like to talk about it, and we tend to talk about it here at Unity as within, among, and beyond, kind of three concentric circles, so that there's the dimension of your own spiritual life. And I think services here are about realigning self mm -hmm. to be your best self and reminding people about the core values um, that we hold here. So that's, that's within. 
and then the support of community and um, and then how you take those values out into the world and the encouragement that it is important to take those values out into the world. When, when I talk to um, Angela Woosley, who mm-hmm. is a mortuary science teacher, mm-hmm. She said she deals with a lot of displaced anger mm-hmm. at for people who who's uh, have just suffered a loss. Um, do you experience that? And how do you how do you relate or help people that are going through either a surprise death or even one that they saw coming? Well, um, I have dealt with every level of death. I have dealt with sudden deaths. I've dealt with the sudden death of children and teenagers. I've dealt with suicides. I've dealt with um, heart attacks and cardiac arrests and sudden death of beloved members here. And I've dealt with long, long decline of many months in hospice um, where the family was able to be present. And what I will say is that sudden death and suicide have particular challenges that are unique to that situation. And there's so much work to be done because you haven't had any of that anticipatory grief. Your, you know, your life wasn't set up to let go of this person. Often people don't have all the business practical things in place. Um, so there's just so much to deal with, uh, both at the practical level and at the psycho-spiritual level. Um, you know, I, I don't see much displaced anger. I, um, I mostly see numbness, disorientation. You know, when I'm counseling a family, I say, please watch your driving. Because mm-hmm. um, people, when they're in grief and in shock, they're at some level bifurcated Mm-hmm. And they don't even know that there's all this work being done in the subterranean chambers of our souls. And they run red lights because they're not all there. And so, I, you know, it's like, just be careful. And I was just meeting with a family last week. And the person said, I ran a red light coming here. <laughs> and thank you for putting it in perspective. I, you know, so. Um, and. Uh, and yeah, and of course, grief and loss is different when when the relationship has had a sense of resolution, that's a you know that is you know is a different kind of grief than the the grief that you experience when there's a fair amount of unresolved issues in the relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of each grief is is different, and certainly forgiving the deceased and feeling forgiven by the deceased is one of the four final gifts that a person can be involved with in the dying process if they're that you know if that can happen yeah and you know i once was tending somebody who kept not dying and kept not dying and kept <laughs> not dying and you know hospice said this person this person really needs i mean this person they had predicted he was going to die the week before. And all the physical signs, and they were right, all the physical signs were there. But he needed to talk to his brother. 
Mm -hmm. He had unfinished business. And unfinished business will keep people alive in ways that science cannot, you know. And I, I, I'm a firm believer in factual science, as is our faith. <laughs> but, you know, there are, the soul has work to do in this life. Mm -hmm. and, and when the soul feels incomplete, whatever that is, it will keep people alive. And I will also say, people with strong, uh, luminous spirits tend to um, sometimes have slower deaths because their spirits are so bright mm -hmm. and so clear. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> I'm sorry for using such incredibly new-agey music for this episode. I almost feel like I'm making fun of my guest by using it. Um, but I'll leave it in just in case it helped elevate your sense of wonder and spirituality. We'll go back to the episode now. Yeah. Have there been uh, times when your faith has been shaken? Or, or what, what, um, yeah, what shakes you? Um, well, certainly the violence in our, in our world shakes me. Um, racism, homophobia, all the oppressions shake my faith. But, but I mean, it feels like moral assaults, but it doesn't shake my faith. It makes my faith stronger. Mm -hmm. Um, I, uh, so my faith is not shaken very often and I, and I can't, and I will say that, um, in 2008, my son was diagnosed with terminal melanoma mm -hmm. and was um, basically told there was no chance that he was going to survive. And so I had to face my beloved only son, not my only child, but my only son, um, facing death. And he was, um, his life was saved by immunotherapy. And mm. he's been cancer free now for six years. But, you know, in the midst of his terminal diagnosis, Matt, he got married. Huh. He he went on a date with this woman three days before he got his diagnosis. It was a new hall. Right. He, he went on a date with her, and then he got his diagnosis. And he called and said, you know, Mom, <laughs> I think I need to break off this relationship because it's not fair to be in an a intimate relationship if, you know, if I'm going to, you know, go live through this awful cancer journey or die. And I said, Jonah, that's his name. If you only take my advice once in your life, I, I encourage you to take it now. I said, let her decide. Come clean, tell her what's going on and see what she has to say. So I, on their third date, he, he told <laughs> her what was up. And what we didn't know then that we do know now is that she had just lost a friend to melanoma. Oh my lord. So she knew. And so she, and even in the midst of that, she agreed to continue to go out with him and then got engaged to him and then they got married and you know, it's amazing. And they're still married. <laughs> Though sometimes I think she wished he didn't die. You know, <laughs> you know how it could be. <laughs> Man. What the, luck. The, the aggravations of marriage. My um again, my heart skipped a, a second because when you said 
he responded to the immunotherapy. I was just like, that hasn't been around very long. No, no, no. no. It's and there's not a lot of cancers that it works on. Right. No, it saved his life. And um, he was in a, a, a support group in New York City for young adults living with terminal diagnoses. Mm-hmm. And out of the group, there are only two survivors. And he's one of them. Out of the group, I think it, they started with 30. Yeah. So, and his, you know, as his doctor says, he went to go visit her recently. And the doctor said, you know, you're no longer our, our only miracle child. <laughs> but he was a miracle child for that office and that department, that oncology department at NYU. Yeah. So, but no more because of immunotherapy. Hmm. So, When I was growing up, I was taught some things that were incorrect. You know, I, I you know, grew up in a homophobic society and, and I kind of have the privilege of being able to see both sides of what you can believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had, I had incorrect, um, you know, misogynistic beliefs and mm-hmm. a whole bunch of stuff. And I, I can look back and see what's changed. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything like that for you when, when you look at the history of your life that you can kind of see how society has changed or how you have changed? Oh, I think, um, you know, just um, being exposed to different kinds of people has has always um, made me stretch and grow. And I think um, understanding white privilege and white supremacy and how it operates in all of our lives Mm -hmm. was incredibly um, revelatory for me. Uh, And, you know, that I... I didn't understand how much I was operating from my own limited reality and context and projecting that onto other people when it wasn't accurate to do so. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've learned a great deal of humility. Um, I mean, I don't mean to act like I'm a humble person, but, but the world, ha- life has humbled me. Um, and all the, so many things I thought I knew I weren't, weren't true. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing that terms like intersectionality, white privilege, um, the word cis for cisgendered, mm-hmm. like weren't in my vocabulary right. a couple of years ago. Right. Right. And right. I, when I look back at my life, I just see, I see a lot of examples of me trying to do good while hurting people mm-hmm. because of ignorance, because, right. you know, it feels good when you think you're being a good person. Right. And that feeling, I feel, gives us a false sense of certainty. That's right. <laughs> and it's really important to know that there's a difference between intention and impact. So we can have all the grandest intentions in the whole world, but how it lands in someone else's life, you know, we can't know. And mm-hmm. and we are learning that our 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 do-gooder sense is often totally disempowering. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we kind of did talk about Mm -hmm. um, memorial services Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and funerals. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have anything to add about that? Well, one of the things that um, we do, there are two things um, in our memorial services that I, I think are worth highlighting. One is 
that we always have a piece where we talk about grief. They're called the words on grief mm -hmm. because we feel like, you know, a lot of people have misunderstood the role of grief. And because it was popularized via Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work, that there were stages. And so if people said, well, I'm not angry, and I never have been angry, um, am I doing it wrong? And and there is no set set pattern for grief. We all, the journey of grief is unique. And it's disorienting, and there are, is no expiration date to grief. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people think, oh, grief lasts about six weeks. Oh, no, grief lasts forever. You know, it changes. And the other thing is your relationship with the deceased continues to grow because you're growing. It's not a static thing. So as somebody who's lost both her parents, I know that my relationship with both of my parents is is different and continues to change and develop as I experience things in life. And it's like, oh, this is what you experienced. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, one last question. Uh -huh. Do you, I often wonder if people with strong vocations feel their sense of identity gets lost because, um, because of their job. Uh -huh. Do you ever feel that because you represent something to so many people mm -hmm. that your identity um, is, is you, you feel a sense of um, loss of self? Um, I think I'm pretty authentic in the role that I play here. Um, but I do have, I work very, very hard and I have a great deal of investment in my role. So I'm now looking at retirement in 18 months and I have, no idea how I'm going to move through the world without being a minister. Uh. And so, yes and no. I mean, I don't, I certainly, I mean, you know, you move through the world with your role intact because you run into people who know you as a minister. Um, like the people at the dog park know my husband and me as the ministers. <laughs> and... Um, you know, how that rumor spread at the dog park, who knows? But people do know that we're ministers at the dog park. Um, yeah. So. Uh, well, well, I'll check back in in 18 months. <laughs> See how you're doing. Uh -huh. um, well, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Absolutely. Uh, this has been your eulogy. My name is Matthew Schneeman. I edited and did the music for this episode. If you have any questions, you can email me at your eulogy mail at gmail.com. And that's it. I'll see you next week. Thank you.